super interesting to me because you know what my portfolio did last week? I have no idea. You know what CPI pr printed out last week? I have no idea. This is, I mean, why should I care, Dougals? I mean, you should care about the economy, even as a consumer. Yeah. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Jolly. Holly? Jolly. Jolly. Oh, Holly Jolly Christmas. That's how, yeah. Yeah. Right? Isn't that how it works? Okay, there it is. How you doing? Good, how about you? Solid. Solid. You was you was telling me I'm as silly as always this week, which is true, which is true, because I, I get I get uh, real excited about some of the day to day moves and the week to week moves this in these couple years in particular. Yeah. Not really, but there's just so much excitement going on. Right. So this week, what happened was the inflation report came out, CPI report for U.S. inflation the next day. Powell was talking about what uh, interest rate hike was going to happen and his general commentary on the markets. So last week I was like, it's about to be explosive, right? It wasn't as explosive actually as I thought it was going to be, but some things happened. But what I actually want to highlight is apparently there's conspiracy theories going on because apparently the minute before the CPI report was released, things started taking off. And the like a number that I saw out there was there were over 13,000 March 10-year futures traded, which is usually like non-existent during yeah. this period pre-market. And so people was like, did the White House leak the report? I don't even know what the White House has a report, but like I'm, I'm not sure who would leak I the I don't think it's the White House. It's Fed, right? <laughs> yeah, but but I, but the but it was like, did the White House leak the report? Like who in the house? Was it the gardener? Like I don't know who in the, the house <laughs> would leak the, the report, but... Anyway, it's controversies. Controversies. Oh, this is uh, super interesting to me because you know what my portfolio did last week? I have no idea. You know what CPI pr printed out last week? I have no idea. This is, I mean, why should I care, Dougals? I mean, you should care about the economy, even as a consumer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't care about the country in which you live? Oh, I care. USA. USA. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Okay. All right. Let's. I mean, my natural thought is there probably is someone that got their hands on information ahead of time. But why would you buy the 10-year? People are making wild bets right now, but you're you're betting on interest rates. So if you know that you have a peek into the future as to interest rate hikes in the near term, it yep. makes more sense to buy a near-term play. Like even a two-year treasury. Oh, is... but, the, the, but the long, the like longer maturity is more sensitive to interest rates. I guess I, um, it doesn't I'm make any sense. I'm just, I'm just saying. Yeah, no, but like, so again, if I, if someone came to me and let's pretend there's no insider trading or anything and said like, this stock you really like is going to report X on Thursday and it's Tuesday. And I wanted to act on that. I don't think I'd be buying like an option as to what the price of that stock will be 10 years down the road. And sorry, that's not exactly what's happening here. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's, I'm all. not sure what I'm not sure what you're talking about. No, I just I I just uh, yeah. I go like, to the if I know a stock's going to release earnings on Thursday, I'm not buying goats. No, you're not <laughs> buying goats. All right, I butchered this. Moving on. Um, our favorite person made me laugh out loud this week because Kathy Wood. Not only does she have her million dollar per coin Bitcoin projection, her largest holding is apparently Zoom, and she is 100% sure, Dougals, that Zoom is going to trade at $1,500 a share in 2026. Yeah. Her her bear case for the stock <laughs> says <laughs> it should currently trade at $700 a share. I forgot about that, which is 10x. Right? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what Zoom currently trades at? $73 like a share. Or 60 What is it? <laughs> well, this is, this is, sorry, this is from Monday last week. It was $73 a share. Yeah. I mean... Literally laugh out loud funny. How do you, how does one, this is like me walking into the grocery store and being like, this 12 pack of Mountain Dew is going to be worth $35 in 
in four years. I, it's just not even in the realm of possible. But that's the that's the thing with some folks. She probably believes this. It's not it's not like some sort of lie. I think she's trying to tell. I think she actually believes these things. She believes that the worst case scenario for Zoom, which for the record, <laughs> the worst case scenario is that the whole thing blows up and creditors are out of money or whatever. Like the, the, I think that's the worst case scenario for Zoom is people use one of the thousand other competitors that are free. Well, that's what I'm saying. And, and the, they the make company, no money. Yeah, and the company goes out of business. The worst case scenario can't be that it's 10x. It's something that rarely any organization does, right? Yeah. 10x in three years, maybe four years, depending on what time of the year she's talking about. I mean, it, it's just, she's just from a different, I give her credit just because I can't understand like being in that mode. Like, so more power to you. And I give her no credit for her ridiculousness. Uh, I mean, Okay, we've talked about meta on the show, right? This is like, I'm a conservative value investor. This is like me writing a research report. I think Meta's trading around 120 a share that says, hey, when Meta gets to 12 bucks a share, that is a deal, guys. You want to pick up some Meta when it's 12 bucks a share. It's so nonsensical on the negative side that it never gets there. And it's just worthless, in my opinion. And I see her doing this on the positive side. I just don't know how you can take this seriously anymore. I mean, I can't. I never did. Like, <laughs> never did. <laughs> okay, so let me let me tilt this a little. Why does the Wall Street Journal still write uh, pieces about her? Because she's clickbait. Uh, she gets headlines. You, like, we're I mean, talking about I her. respect we the Wall Street Journal more than that. You don't think the Wall Street Journal wants people to read their pieces? No, I, do, I don't. I don't, I don't like Gawker. About I'm not talking like Gawker, but I, no, I think people read this. Interesting. She's a, she is a, uh, like a force, uh, and one of the few uh, what I call personalities that are within investing. You got her. Not I'm not saying they're in the same, like general camp, but you got her, like Buffett and Charlie, right? And then every now and again, one of the like a Howard Marks might pop up, right? But but it's. You don't get this kind of gold where you can be like, that's some it's kind of like when um uh Anderson Cooper interviewed, I think it was the mayor, yeah, it was the mayor of Las Vegas a couple years ago. Did you see that interview? No. He couldn't make it through the interview without laughing. Like it was so absolutely ridiculous. But like people are gonna watch that interview and you go, like, why Anderson Cooper, the person who typically stands like in the middle of the Middle East, <laughs> like trying to talk about what's going yeah, on here, is yeah. right. Sometimes you just got to. Sometimes you just got to. All right. Please go rate and review the podcast. We love that. Listener mail, skippydoogles at gmail.com. We got some listener mail coming up later in the show. We love it. Skippydoogles at gmail.com. We love it when you send it to us. Uh, thank you. And I'm going to talk about imitation. I'm reaching to the fishbowl. Counter signaling, right? Yes. I'm reaching into the fishbowl and I'm talking about imitation and counter signaling. And for those that have not listened to our interview, with W. David Marks, please go back and listen to that. We'll put it in the uh, this link in the Substacks and go back and, and listen to that one. I don't know. Do you know what uh, what episode number that was? I'm just pulling that up. It's episode 96. Cool. Episode 96. Go and listen to that. Uh, he wrote a book that is phenomenal with style called Status and Culture, and we we talked to him about that. And he talked about counter signaling. This is not to be clear. This is not his piece, but it's just very related. This is from. This is a blog post by Rob Henderson called Be Wary of Imitating High-Status People Who Can Afford to Counter-Signal. Mm -hmm. Starts off with this quote, humans are high-fidelity imitators. We are especially likely to seek advice from and imitate those who have done well for themselves. This reminded me, even just that start, reminded me of something you talk about a whole bunch of like, how we always look at the best of the best of the best, right, to see what's up. And, that, and that's what he discusses here. Tells a couple stories to start off. One story talks about asking a professor how to be a successful grad student. And the professor was like, go ask a grad student. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Don't I, ask me. Right? Yeah. Ask someone ask who's student. actually a successful grad student. Yeah. Exactly. Then he asked, uh, he had to tell the story about asking a really successful author. Like, how do you maintain your online presence? How do you think about writing online? What do you think about social media? And said, the author went, I'll tell you what I did when I was in your situation, but don't ask me about what I'm doing now. Right, which I, I think is also very important. 
Uh, and the thing that this uh, author said, he explained that in his early days, he posted a lot and wrote a lot and sought and responded to feedback to cultivate a readership. By the time of our conversation, though, he was less active online. After building a foundation, he engaged less frequently with his audience and directed his attention to more time-consuming writing projects. I, I read that verbatim because it's really, it's, I think it's a, so exemplary of the reason why it's hard to look at people that are so successful, right? Because yep. they're going to do different things then. A couple other points, but to bring this back to investing quickly, um, and this is something that that uh, you, you've said a bunch too, in investing... People are buying assets, they're buying certain equities, and you might look at like the Howard Marks, the Warren Buffett, whatever, but you don't know what hedges they have. You also don't know, like with uh, when we're talking about Druckenmiller, right, him having a significant amount of his current portfolio in crypto, you don't know what billions of dollars they have just sitting on the side where this doesn't really matter to them. Yeah, right? I think you're Either. thinking of Bill Miller, actually. Oh, and Bill Miller. Like, yeah, that's who it is. He's almost Miller. entirely Amazon and Bitcoin. And yeah. that makes sense because he's worth... And I don't know if this number's right, but like $13 billion. And he has all his houses paid off and all his kids through college and everything else. So he, it doesn't matter for him. Like he yeah. likes those bets. It, that doesn't mean that, you know, the person with 2.5 kids and a couple hundred thousand dollars in their retirement savings should yes. match his portfolio. It's a terrible idea. Exactly. Because successful people can afford to do or not do certain things that you cannot afford to do or not do. Uh, this post brings up things like uh, showing up at social events late. Right? It's like they can they can do that, right? Like you you don't you don't look at that person and be like, oh, they came in in a helicopter all late to make an egg, to make an entrance. Let me do that. Like nobody knows you. You're just gonna like disrupt the party and be rude, right? Like when you're trying <laughs> when you're trying to to build like who you are and your brand and whatnot, you have to perform differently than like when you have that brand. Uh, and yeah. it's very similar when you're when you're building. A portfolio, building wealth, building your your budgeting, all that stuff early on. That's different than when you're trying to preserve, or when can, something might not matter. Can we talk about chimpanzees here? Yeah, I thought this pretty was cool. so interesting. Pretty cool. Okay, so tell me if I got this right. They um, have done studies with like children and chimpanzees, and they have, I believe, an adult signal through an action of like they do three things that are completely meaningless and one thing that really matters to get say some food and the chimpanzees are smart enough to figure out that the meaningless things don't matter and they just go do the thing of meeting to try and get that same reward the kids the human children they like exactly mirror the adult and i think the author here the author's rob henderson if we haven't uh mentioned his name it is pointing out how adept using that example to explain how adept humans are to think that all parts of signaling are important. And again, if you go back to the David Marks status and culture book, he does a brilliant job, like breaking down all the ins and outs of why the human brain thinks that way. But that's so fascinating to me because I see that example and I'm like, the chimpanzees are smarter, but in a way, the human copying of, of everything is wiser. Yeah, it, it was, it's pretty interesting. That's the point that was made. As you said, the, the chimps, basically, they say this is not what the video that's in the post is, but I'm just going to make this up. The chimpanzee will see the human do like breakdance moves, right? Dribble yeah. a basketball, shoot it, and then pick up the banana and eat it. The chimp's like, none of that other stuff mattered. Like, I'm going to skip the breakdancing, skip the basketball, and just get the banana, right? So yep. that's what the chimp will do. Whereas a child will do all the activities. They'll try the breakdancing. They'll try the shooting the basketball. And he's saying that that has helped to your wise point. That has helped humans actually to survive and thrive because we we save time and energy by looking at exactly what you do and just do the same thing. And much of the time, just doing the same thing gets you by, right? Um, whereas you might skip in it, you might unintentionally skip like an important component if you just go, well, all I wanted was the banana. Yep. Well, um, and in your crazy example from before, that might mean the person that's that's trying to copycat the rich and famous person might jump in the helicopter that they can't afford and arrive to the party late. And all those actions are idiotic if you don't have the yes. same status <laughs> as, you know, um, Coach Prime, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And we I didn't define this, so apologies. We mentioned counter signaling, but what what counter signaling is, is when you've gotten to the point of status where you can do where you choose to do something that is typically associated with lower status 
on purpose. Uh, the example given here in this post was the rich, I think it was like a rich CEO can show up to the office on a bike because they're like, that's a power move. I can ride my bike to the office. I choose to ride my bike to the office. The person working at Pizza Hut in this post shows, shows up to the Pizza Hut and the bike because they can't afford a car. And that's different. But you're like, I'm at the point where I choose to ride a bike. Like, I'm going to choose to ride a broke down bike, right? But that's that's just a, that's kind of signaling. So I thought this was pretty pretty amazing. And I also think that for our uh, talk on the investing world, it is, it's really important to make sure that you are thinking fully through your situation, right? Your investment profiles. We always talk about your time horizon, your risk appetite, all that stuff. And don't just say, well, Jim Cramer said to buy this, so I'm going to buy it. Yeah, say buy the opposite if it's Jim Cramer. I'm just <laughs> potentially. It's a, it's a joke, guys. It's a joke. No, it's good stuff. I really enjoyed the read. We'll put it out. Uh, watch the video about chimpanzees on Monday morning if you're bored. It's kind of hilarious. Yep. Go for it. What's in the bowl? All right. Michael Mobison um, came out with this awesome article on capital allocation. It's 85 pages. I like went through. It's all highlighted up. I'm going to try and distill it down in a way that's actually interesting for the listeners rather than talk through piece by piece. But just fascinating stuff. He talks about how businesses and they focus on the Russell 3000 allocate cash and what they're doing well and what they're doing poorly. So the first point he makes is that all the steps a CEO takes to get to a CEO almost never relate to what the true job of a CEO becomes when you manage a large company, which is allocating your capital in a smart way, whether that's spending money on acquisitions, stock buybacks, dividends, R&D, like all these things are how the best CEOs succeed and are judged. And they don't have any training for that effectively. So call that the Peter principle, call that whatever you want. It happens yep, all over yep. the place, but it's very interesting, right? So a couple quotes here. One is that he says the vast majority of companies are uh, reallocating too much too little of their cash, meaning they're being too conservative. And he estimates that 98% of companies in the Russell 3000 are not allocating capital in the wisest possible way. And it wasn't, it's not just being too conservative, if I remember this. It's also saying that there's, you kind of just ride the inertia of how the capital was allocated before. And so you'd say last year we spent $10 $10 million, on, which is really small marketing budget for a big company, but we spent $10 million on marketing. Maybe this year we'll spend $10,100,000 on marketing yep, because yep. we spent $10 million, as opposed to saying, should, maybe we should spend zero on marketing and allocate it somewhere else too. No, so that is exactly, you see that in the government budget, you see that everywhere. People, there's just this inertia of this is what we've done in the past. And very rarely do people start with a blank piece of paper and go, like, what is our strategy as a company, and how should that dr- drive the investments we make? So that I'm so glad you brought that up. That was my next point. I think that's like there's one takeaway here. Maybe don't give as much weight to what you've done historically, and start with a clean perspective that's driven by strategy to allocate your cash. There's a lot of interesting stuff, but the the last thing I really want to talk about is if your business makes profit. And if your business can service all the debt and everything else, and you end up with operating free cash flow, or maybe even straight free cash flow, there's a few things you can do with that, right? We mentioned some of these before. You can do a merger or acquisition. You can do capital expenditures. You can do other investments that aren't R&D. You can do R&D. You can increase your networking capital. You can buy back shares. You can issue cash dividends, or you can make debt prepayments, right? If you have those things in mind, he has some really cool graphs about how people make those decisions. So with those things in mind, Douglas, what do you think companies spend the most of their excess cash on? I have no idea. Um, it's mergers and acquisitions. M&A. Yeah. It's so I just did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is so interesting because to me, this is one of those things where if your pile of cash grows as a company, as it gets larger and larger, you start to go, yeah, are we being wise with that? Like, we need to do something. Our cash balances are too high. And 
I think what often happens is the leadership team over beers or conversations with other company leaders end up going down this mergers and acquisitions path when I don't think it's often the wisest uh, approach. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Am I crazy? No, I, I think you're generally right. This is an overstatement, but I think it's a it's a more helpful mindset is to say you should almost never buy an or, another organization. Like that, that's almost never the right answer. That doesn't mean you shouldn't buy. I'm just saying from a mindset standpoint, I think it's helpful for you to have that mindset to then look at all the other options because there, there's so many hidden costs that come with that. Integrating in other cultures, integrating in technology, like there's so much, but I think often those costs are overlooked. So I'm I'm in general agreement. So check this out. Exhibit 16, if anyone reads the paper, talks about if anyone has ever worked at a company that's gone through a merger acquisition, you're going to love the word synergies, right? So he breaks down <laughs> revenue synergies for mergers and acquisitions versus cost synergies and breaks it down into the percentage of anticipated synergies that are actually captured after the merger. I don't know if I can do this justice verbally. This is amazing. He basically provides a template that says, if you're buying another company because of revenue synergies, if you think your sales organizations are going to pair well together, that is much less likely to actually come true than if cost synergies are in place. Meaning you have two same operations teams that do the exact same things, that service the same type of clients. Like you can capture uh, some additional profit by getting rid of some folks there. So one, if you're thinking about a merger and acquisition, at least use the template here that says, focus on cost rather than revenue synergies. I, I just found that to be that's incredibly interesting. insightful. Really interesting. Love that. The other thing that's mentioned in here, and then I, uh, we can move on is, um, I forget the individual, but there's an individual that says, companies are historically bad at making these capital allocation decisions, in part because the CEO is not trained to do it, in part because there's all these other temptations with mergers and acquisitions, or uh, making investments in your company, spending money on capital. This theory that I just want to talk at you with a high level, that is, you should take all the excess cash you have, you should give that back to your shareholders, maybe in the form of dividends, and then you should let them make the capital allocation decisions. Meaning if they got a dividend and chose to reinvest it in your company, that would give license for you to continue with your current strategy. But if they chose to take that capital and reinvest it somewhere else, it would effectively be like the market driving your business strategy by saying, we don't believe in your investment hypothesis right now. I, I see you making faces over there. Yeah, I think it, <laughs> I think this depends on, I don't know. There's one one part of me, the, the, uh, the old adage of if you love something, let it go. If it comes back to you, it's yours. You know, <laughs> if it doesn't, that's one part of me. The majority of me is more in like the Warren Buffett camp where you go, like, if you believe that you should be running this organization, then you should also believe that you can allocate capital the best yeah. and not send it all out into the wilderness to see if it comes back. Most CEOs, um, this is unfounded, but I'm just throwing it out there. I think most CEOs are not particularly good. <laughs> and so they should probably do what you stated, but you should only really become CEO if you believe that you are good and therefore you should allocate the capital Well, up to a certain point. I think it's up to a certain point. Yeah, but to your point though, exactly right. Like if you're in that seat, um, it's one of those things where you don't believe that you got to that seat because of luck or you have you, you don't have the skill set. Like you're going to have that belief. So you're never going to do this. It's a, it's a thought experiment that yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought was... Vaguely. It's interesting. Yeah. I yeah. think maybe even as CEO, it's a thought experiment you should have in yourself. And like, if you, if your answer too many times in a row is, yeah, I should probably just give this cash back to shareholders because I don't really know what I'm doing. Then maybe that's a, that's a signal that either you should go into a new business or you shouldn't be CEO. Mm -hmm. I so. think that tells you a lot. Um, mm -hmm. The other main takeaway I'll mention, there's really cool stuff on cash conversion cycles uh, for finance nerds across industries. There's some good stuff. But generally, this says CFOs are too conservative. Like in 95% of cases, CFOs are too conservative. I totally get that. I think I understand why that is. But 
that's a fun takeaway as well, because it probably means the finance leader in your organization is over there worrying about a worst case scenario. And in, in a lot of cases, that's dragging your business or holding your business back from making a really smart bet in a way that you haven't done historically to throw some capital over here and turn that into 10x growth. Like, just fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And one of, if I remember this correctly, one of the reasons why the authors of this stated that uh, CEOs are not particularly good capital allocators for the most part is because of the way they're incentivized. Like they're not incentivized to be good capital allocators. And I think that that's an example. In many cases, they're incentivized financially to be more conservative. So yep. it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Awesome. So it's a good right. piece. Uh, the yeah. co-author is Dan Callahan. Um, and we'll put this out on the Substack. It's probably only for your deep finance nerds, but even if you just flip through the charts, uh, really good research here. Thank you. Thanks for, for shooting that over and for covering it. It's good stuff. All right, fishbowl time. There's this tweet, a uh, tweet sent by Gavin Baker, who is a partner at an investment firm. I saw it because it was replied to by Bill Gurley, the venture capitalist that we, we've talked about a good amount here on the show. And Bill's uh, reply, which got my interest here, was we wandered to a place where most companies quit aspiring to be performant. Glad that is over. And I went, skirt. I'm going to read this. And what this was, what it still is, actually, it's still out there unless Elon <laughs> Musk has has banned this Twitter account. It's still out there. So this was, it was a like a redacted email that this uh, investor I think had received from one of their portfolio companies. And so he like redacted out the name of the, the company and all that stuff. And I'm going to read part of this email, which I okay. think is it's, it's sensitive. It's culturally sensitive, but I think is important for us to like, just think about uh, within the, the business world. Here we go. I noticed the change sometime between 2016 and 2017 for the first four years at the last company I started the only thing anyone cared about was results. The bar was extremely high for employees and everyone was grinding. When I had one-on-ones with employees, they would ask about different parts of the business or how they could do their jobs better. In 2017, the conversations changed from why aren't we growing in Los Angeles to the team in Los Angeles feels underappreciated. The reason I say that this is sensitive is because people and companies should feel appreciated. You should feel recognized. You should feel valued. Like, I believe all that. And upon reading this, I was kind of thinking, and I was like, it is interesting. Like, the amount of conversation, if I go back, and if I go back a few years ago, the amount of conversation that is more, that was more about, like, performance improvement, numbers, doing more, was different than what I have seen and and by seeing, I mean like read about in the news and everything. It's like it's a different conversation that we're having. And there's an inter I think the balance is incredibly important. I hadn't seen it summed up this way and thought it was a really interesting way and thought provoking way to sum it up. This is what happens with a twelve year bull run and unemployment in the threes, correct? I mean, we had a twelve year bull run and unemployment in the threes, and this happened, but I I can't. Uh... No, so uh, if I understand Bill Gurley's point and your point correctly, here's how I process it. When employees become more comfortable because their job feels guaranteed, because their companies grow rapidly, because their salaries hopefully grow as well, the conversation shifts from this thing in the back of their head about, is my job safe? Can I provide for my family? Can I pay my rents? Like, can I buy the house that I want to buy? To, oh, well, I don't have to worry about that. That's the economy is great. I can get a job wherever I want. Now I start thinking about the, is it Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Like I yeah. start thinking about the next thing up, right? I'm not concerned about food and shelter and paycheck or yep, anything yep, yep. else. I'm concerned about my comfort and like, I really like this guy in LA and why isn't the LA office like, why don't we have breakfast burritos on Fridays? Yeah. Am I just yeah. totally butchering this? No, I don't think you are. I do think that the balance is important. I do. I believe that people should feel appreciated. They should be recognized. They should feel valued. I believe that fervently. Yeah, me too. And I believe that that should be balanced with 
high performance, high bars, right? Excellence. Like I think that those two things go hand in hand. And there is, in addition to the 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 twelve year bull run and interest rates, like everything that we've had here, which I do believe, as you were stating, is supportive of a faster change to this. I also think there are just generational elements that it goes back further than that. I recently read uh, Becoming, uh, Michelle Obama's memoir. Mm-hmm. And there was, I'm going to fully butcher this. So apologies, Michelle, because I know you're a longtime listener. I'm going to fully butcher this though. But there was a point where she was saying she was a lawyer and just couldn't do it anymore. Like it wasn't, it wasn't driving her satisfaction. And she's in the car with her mom and her parents were like, they worked to the bone, like not, they yep. didn't do anything for themselves, like ever, right. To be able to finance the education of their the kids. So she's in the car with her mom and she went, I'm just not happy right now. And she she goes, I don't know what was happening in my mom's head, right? You never know fully what's happening in her head, but I had to bet she's like, you're a lawyer making hundreds of thousands of dollars. She was like 150, yeah. $200,000 a year. Yeah. And she said, all my mom did was she like gave me this smirk and went, girl, go make your money. You know, like <laughs> it's just one of those, like there's a, it's a shift in mentality where if you go back, you know, decades to like the previous generation, a lot of what we at least hear about, right, is how it's just. Like you work at the same company forever. Like like you're working to to do good work to build up to get to that next level of Maslow, right? Oh, I have strong opinions here. Yeah, exactly. And I've had similar conversations with my parents about like trying to to hit this perfect ideal of work life balance and uh, prestige and a job I enjoy and all these things. The the Michelle Obama conversation. And by the way, Michelle, I'm in Hawaii in March, so let's grab coffee. But I think I don't think that's generational at all. I think that's Michelle Obama's parents' generation always had the Great Depression in the back of their mind, and they had the high inflation period of the seventies, and they had like they had all these challenges. And don't it's not this generation; it's yeah, yeah, yeah. The past twenty years, outside of two thousand eight, and some stress and depression with COVID, have been like a cakewalk man yep, yep. and and so people are more complacent and when the the i don't know when times get tough it's going to shift the mindset i office at a place um that hires like college students for 19 bucks an hour and i really like the the founder there he's owned the business for 45 years and and really knows what he's about and he's told me effectively off the record like i can't wait for this thing to blow up because I'm so sick of this 19 year old kid coming to me and being like, I can't make 22 bucks an hour. I need 24 bucks an hour. And I will not like do X, Y, Z as you asked me to do it. Cause I'll go work somewhere else. It, I think it's just out of kilter in terms of people's expectations. Yeah. And speaking of the last 20 years, there was a, a recent uh, wealth of common sense post. Um, that's what is what Ben Carlson. Yep. Uh, and he had he just had a, a table uh, that was, and the the the, uh, the title was something like, "How often is the stock market down two years in a row?" It was like something like that was like the title, mm-hmm. right? And I've seen these numbers many, many, many times, but I still just like to click on it and look at the reds and the greens, like because it's Christmas time. And so I'm looking at this uh, this table, and what was interesting per what you were saying is, so it hasn't happened very often that the stock market goes down two years in a row. It hasn't happened very often, but when it has happened is mostly a while ago. Like it was basically like the early 1930s, the late 1930s, the early 1940s, like a period in the 1960s, the 1970s, right? And then after that, you hit the early 2000s and that was it, right? Even even with the, uh, from a, this is purely from a stock market perspective, even during the great financial crisis, 2008 was a real bad year. 2007 was an okay year. 2009 was a good year. Like you had one year, which was real is not good, but still it's been 20 years, even from a stock market perspective, that the market has gone down two years in a row. Like that's a, it's a big deal. Well, you know why that is? We don't pay our bills anymore. We just, you and I, we just cut interest rates and spend any time that 2007 happens or 20 March of 2020 happens. We just drop everything, spend a bunch of money, and then get the stock market to rebound. And eventually, you can only play that game for so long. Sorry, I'm like 
down a rabbit hole yeah, of yeah, yeah. That's all right. the that's U.S. All right. economy blowing up in 100 years. Yeah. But like, that's why it happened more frequently a long time ago. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. pre the 70s, we didn't have that same mindset. Like, eventually, we actually paid our bills and balanced the budget. And we just appear to not do that anymore. Why? Just let them pile up. <laughs> I'm joking. All right. What's next in your bowl? I got a couple of rants in the fishbowl. Okay. First is a treat, a tweet from Ian Bremer, right? He says, I was recently talking to an exec with a company in Beijing that employs a thousand employees. A month ago, they had one employee test positive for COVID and it shut down the entire, entire operation. This week, 50% tested positive for COVID and they're still open. I don't know if this is true. I heard the buzz, you know, saw the headlines this week about China's new COVID policy. We've been talking about if it's going to happen for a while. It seems like there's a change of pace. This, the reason I bring this up is like, this could potentially have impacts on the world economy in a lot of ways if the policy is that different and it's changed that much in the past month. It seems like it has from everything I've read. Like this doesn't seem like an anomaly. And it's not crazy. It is. It is. And it also, to me, is um, like, I feel like COVID in China is kind of like Deion Sanders going to the Colorado Buffaloes because it's kind of like, you're going to weld your people in their houses? I'm coming. You're going to shut down those businesses? I'm coming. You're going to not manufacture anymore? I'm coming. But it's, it's just it's just waiting, right? It's one of those things where like you have the you know, back in history, whenever you had an exploring civilization that then got to a new land, they gave all the disease, right, to all the people because they hadn't been infected yet. Yeah, This is just a case where everyone is in lockdown, but it's still out there. And so once you let them out, like, they're all going to get it, right? It's coming. Um, yeah. And so it's coming. Yeah. Deion Sanders, COVID Deion Sanders all up in China. He can't be stopped. Uh Sorry, your analogy just really messed with me. Um, so do you, I agree, there's going to be significant COVID spread. Hopefully there's not much loss of life because of that. If they truly open the economy and have aggressive goals for 2023, and we don't make predictions on the show because predictions are impossible to do well and forecast the same way, but like, what does this potentially mean? I mean, I get more excited about Baba, but that's a the microscopic view. Do you know? I mean, I think I think China start goes back to being more China-like. What exactly that means, to your point, I don't know, right? But it it's like the rest of the not the rest of the world, but much of the rest of the world. You start to get back to finding whatever the new normal kind of is. Um, so I, it's generally uh, from a economic perspective and business perspective generally more positive the implications otherwise question yeah okay let me piggyback that fishbowl with one other i'm being selfish here um i want you to come up with a business managerial harvard business study example that parallels what i'm going to talk about recently you just mentioned coast prime so we're going to talk college football so the news long ago was that uh ucla and USC are leaving the Pac-12 to go to the Big Ten. The nearest school from LA is Lincoln, Nebraska. That's a two and a half hour plus flight. Like it, it doesn't make any sense geographically. But the TV contract there is bigger in the range of $20 million per year, right? So it totally makes sense from just a dollars and cents perspective. The pushback, and I'm just going to talk about UCLA here, has been pretty drastic. Gavin Newsom, the Governor of California hates this. The large majority of the regents hate it. 65% of the student athletes who are impacted by this disagree with it. And the large, large majority of the alumni has no desire to travel more than halfway across the U.S. to see their sports teams play, to connect. You know, like, what is college sports? It's ability to connect with college friends and the university. And it's much easier to do that in San Francisco or Seattle or Denver or Phoenix, right? It just is. So put that all aside. That What the region said this week is fine, go. But because you're turning this into a professional sports league, we want you to spend $12 million a year on athlete welfare uh, with chartered flights, with 
things that help combat depression, with things that help them keep up in their academics. And we're likely going to make you pay some sort of subsidy to Cal Berkeley, who's the other uh, University of California school in this system that is probably adversely impacted by this move. So that total bill is going to come to somewhere between 14 and $22 million. Takes out the large majority of the financial benefit from going to this conference that's far away. At least for the first I, couple of years. Uh, I mean, those those TV contracts are going to grow at the same yeah, rate. Yeah, yeah, effect. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I hear you. So yep. I just, if this was a business and someone said, uh, you might come out, you might make an additional 7% in revenues per year, but you're going to alienate the large majority of your customers, the people directly impacted, and like your alumni base. And the, the last thing I want to mention here is universities take in hundreds of millions of dollars in donations a year and, and grants and subsidies for research funding, for academics, for athletics. Like if you alienate the people that finance the majority of your operations, how is this a good investment decision? How, how would, if a CEO made the same move, how would he not be kicked to the curb already? Are you talking about UCLA, yeah. Elon Musk at Twitter, or Mark Zuckerberg at Meta? <laughs> okay, I think Twitter might, Musk at Twitter, like think of what he's done. He, he's now selling like $4 billion of Tesla. He sold $3.5 billion of Tesla stock last week. He's complaining about how he can't service the debt for Twitter and how the revenues have fallen off. Well, who's responsible for all that stuff? The person that came in and rocked the boat, right? Not in his mind. I don't know. Yeah. No, but I, it's a, I hear you completely. I do think that there is some, something analogous a little bit <laughs> like between those two things. The reason I brought up Zuckerberg at Meta, which I don't think is at the same level, is he has a couple times, not not again, not to the same level, but if you, even if you go back to Newsfeed, right? When he first came out with Newsfeed, yeah. nobody liked that. Nobody yep. liked it, right? I think what he's doing with, with the metaverse right now is even more aggressive to a certain extent, just because the company's larger. Like that, that's mostly why. So like the dollars are a little bit larger. But it's still not at the same point. It's not like he's throwing shade at their advertisers, or he's not trying to like get rid of the, yeah, the other not part of the actively business. trying to destroy yeah. like his incoming revenue. Yeah, exactly. Like you could argue that Musk um, might Is. indirectly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or doesn't care. He's just more. Indifferent. I mean, he, Musk doesn't think he is, but this the backlash is clearly tied to him. Yeah. Well, no. So I love that example with Meta because you gave some examples of when he really did rock the boat but they have rode through and i think most would argue that facebook's a lot better off than it was in 2013 or whenever the newsfeed came out so maybe there is a light at the end of the tunnel and this is really smart by the leadership at ucla i just don't see it. It, it i don't think you should be alienating your customer base um that actively it's gonna but be interesting I mean, the last example I'd give is is more like the Reed Hastings approach when Netflix was still sending DVDs through the yeah. mail and doing the streaming thing, and they canceled the DVDs, and everyone lost it. And he oh, said, what was that? "I messed quick, up." Quick Flicks or something? What was it? I don't know. <laughs> they like created like a different brand. It was something like that. Yeah, yeah. It, but he said, "Like I messed up. We can do this without too much heartache. We're gonna yeah. let it die naturally," and kept the customers happy. And then. Yep, yep. So, yep. All right. Let's sing your fishbowl. All right. I got one quick hit and then you want to hit on listener mail? Yeah. Okay. All right. My quick hit, Pew, the like research organization, they came out with a pretty interesting overall article. It was like the most interesting things Pew has seen in 2022. One of them that's related to the stuff we talk about here particularly caught my eye. And it's looking at how much of the purchases in the U.S. are made with cash and uh, it's just it's there are a number of different angles you could take with this, but I think the data alone is pretty fascinating. It looks at the difference between 2015, 2018, and 2022, and yeah. on the left hand side of this graph is labeled all or almost all of purchases made with cash, and the right hand side is none of purchases that are made with cash. In 2015, 24 percent of purchases were made using cash. 
In 2022, that's 14%. So a 10 percentage point change. If you go to the none of purchases made with cash, that was 24% in 2015 and 41% in, uh, in 2022. And where do again, you fall on this? Where do I fall? Yeah. Do you use, use cash? Only when absolutely needed. So yeah, I'm like effectively in often. that 41% that yeah, I'm closer never to uses cash. Yeah. yeah. I'm closer to 41. What, what first came to mind for this was uh, the conversation that we had, I guess, about a year and a half ago about uh, digital currencies and negative interest rates uh, with James McIntosh. And the reason was, this might be a leap, but the reason was because he was talking about the world going toward negative interest rates as a world where you effectively get rid of cash um, and mm -hmm. everything goes digital. So that, that's what came to mind. That is not what Pew is saying here or anything, but that was like initially what came to mind for me. I think there are a number of angles just thought the uh, the point in general was pretty interesting. Yeah, right. so, I mean, the larger point is, are you implying that that might be people putting more purchases on credit cards and that they're struggling because of it? Or are you not making that leap of faith? I'm not making any leap. I'm really just saying that uh, that I think it's an interesting data point that, and there are a number of implications to go, or number, maybe not implications. There are a number of um, potential outcomes that could happen because we're moving to cash. So I just think the data point's interesting. This It could be a move to credit cards, but it could also be using Venmo or like there's lots of stuff that you could you could be doing there. So I don't know. But uh, what's so fascinating is the it, as we move away, like there are some places that will not take cash at all now. And some of those same places that will charge a convenience fee to process a credit card, like say 3%. And then the smart people using credit cards that are stuck paying that fee will get the rewards or the cash back to get their one and a half or 2% cash back. So it's fascinating to me to watch like, People be like, oh, this new system is better, but effectively we all pay 1% to Visa. We get 2% back to ourselves and we pay 3% more to the vet. Like it doesn't yeah, yeah, seem yeah. super efficient, right? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Should we get that jingle jangle gone? Yes. All right. Hit that mail jingle. They fight. Okay, so our first piece of listener mail, and I think we have a couple. Oh, let's mention the first one. Uh, John mentioned that value stocks are going to crush. John, I love you. You're right, of course. <laughs> value stocks are the greatest thing ever. I, I think I think we can keep it nice and simple there. <laughs> Second piece of listener mail came from Theo, uh, and Theo passed along a University of Colorado study. Maybe Coach Prime was involved. I mean, he might need to be a guest on the podcast, Eagles. The way this is going. <laughs> That says couples who have a joint bank account often have happier relationships. The study found that 62% of couples who had a joint bank account also spent money in the same way. So there's alignment and happiness that seems to come with joint bank accounts. Do you buy this? What I buy is an abstract view of this. I mean, I, yes, I buy this, but I buy uh, a more meta point, more high level point, which is. I'd say couples that have more transparent communication are more likely to be happier and stay together longer. Mm. Finances are a pretty key point of life kind of in general and something that is pervasive, right? In an in individual's life and in a couple's life. And so therefore having consistent, clear communication around finances, I buy into having joint bank accounts is a forcing mechanism to do that. Yeah. And so therefore, like I buy it, but I think the higher level point is, is mostly what I take away. I'd say, uh, that's my take too. What's funny is how, um, strong of opinions folks seem to have about this. Like I know people that are absolutely not in that camp. I guess my sense is if you're ready to say, I'm spending the rest of my life with you, you should probably, or it seems logical. <laughs> I shouldn't say you should to also like, share all the financial minutia together now i know you and your wife are more on the same page investing than my wife and i are my my wife will be like hey should we buy this and i'll be like absolutely we um we own some of that company and she'll be like we do <laughs> she just has no interest <laughs> yep. in the investing in finance well like the investing side of the house yep. um 
but the banking like yeah i'm i'm in favor of doing it together because it's just one other uh, life decision that you're gonna have to make yeah i think you should certainly talk about it and share um even in even for the the accounts that we don't have jointly we we use a software that brings all the accounts together so we can see all the transactions. So it's not, oh. th- there's, there's, there's no difference from that standpoint. Initially, I was kind of like, man, does that mean like our checks got to have this, our, both our names on it? And I was like, this seems like an inconvenience. <laughs> like that was kind of my, <laughs> my take. But anyway, it, but is it, had nothing, it had nothing to do with the financial transparency component of it. It's just like, I already have mine. You have yours. <laughs> Bank of America says we have to come in to talk to somebody. Like this just seems like a whole thing. Like I, like I, I mean, so. um. So you're like the speculative gambler over here. How about your your do you do joint gambling, joint sports betting? I'm I'm ribbing you here, but uh, no, because I I in okay. First of all, it's not gambling. <laughs> when I when I bet on sports, I bet on sports once a year, and it's during yeah. the first week of March Madness. And I have no concept that any of that's coming back to me. <laughs> and so I think gambling is when like you give somebody money with some concept that there's a chance that that money's coming back to you. I'm so bad at it, like so <laughs> epically bad that it's really just it's pure entertainment fee. Like I pay somebody, I pay somebody for me to have anxiety for the yeah. next hour. Like that is, that is, that's exactly, that's all that it is. It's not gambling. You just made like a doctor's visit sound like a good investment, like a really stressful doctor's visit. That's it is sports gambling. It is. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> On that note. <laughs> Diggles, this was fun. All right, guys, we mentioned rate and review. You can grab a premium subscription to support the show. Skippydougals.supercast.com. Uh, listener mail is skippydougals at gmail.com the sub stack is awesome and you can get there if you go to skippydougals.com um twitter is by the same name we'll talk to you next week peace yeah. all right